the days of everything needs to be gold plated, the highest tech, the best, the biggest, the farthest, the loudest, all the SSS type approach to it, um, you, you know, are, are gone. It's reflected a bit in our this year startup and COVID. Like everybody else, we've had to dramatically uh, refocus our food and beverage. But even back in May and June, when we were talking about this, uh, before we, you know, realized this is still what we would be doing, our approach was not uh, duck confit at lunch or lobster thermidor. <laughs> it was the best three cheese, Vermont cheese, by the way, grilled cheese sandwich that you can get because, guys, it's a ski area. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Hermitage Club is back, and it is very different from the business that failed a couple years back. We're going to get into all of that very shortly, but first, wherever else you listen to the pod, you're going to want to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. There is so much more to the storm than the podcast. Also, I am in need of more iTunes reviews. Finally, please follow the podcast on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook at the Storm Skiing Journal. I've gotten a lot more active on social media lately, and I'll drop little news tidbits there as I learn them throughout the week. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Use code East Coast, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. First issue landed in my mailbox the other day, and it's incredible. It's more of a work of art than a magazine. The thing is huge, first of all. When I say mailbox, I'm exaggerating. The thing would not fit in my mailbox. It was laying on the floor in the lobby of my building. The quality of the writing is unreal. It's huge, amazing photos. This is not like anything else in snow sports media. It is very deep, incredibly varied, incredibly well-conceived. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com and you will get a PDF of that first issue to check out that content as Mike and the crew work on issue 195 throughout the spring. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 32, Bill Bennyan, General Manager of the Hermitage Club, Vermont. Yes, there are two Northeast ski areas reopening this fall. The big one, obviously, is Saddleback, and we already talked to GM Andy Shepard about that titanic effort. The other is a little more off the radar, but it is happening, and that's a good thing, because you never want to see a ski area completely disappear. I'm talking about the Hermitage Club, the former Haystack ski area in southern Vermont that made an unsuccessful run as a private club before the state shut it down in 2018. But the past is the past, and a new ownership group has taken charge refocusing the business on skiing, and bringing in some of the best ski area operators in the region to make sure the on-snow experience is worth the large price of admission. One of those people is my guest today, Bill Bennyan, who for more than two decades had the enormous challenge of running Mountain Creek, a much maligned but vital mountain just an hour outside of New York City. We didn't forget you, Mountain Creek fans. 
We spend a good 20 minutes at the end of this pod talking about that ski area's dramatic transformation under Intro West in the 1990s. And you're going to want to stick around to hear that. For the rest of you who just want to listen in and gawk at the number of Ben Franklins you need to peel out of your wallet to gain entry to the Hermitage Club, we're going to go over every detail of the relaunch. Let's do it. My guest today is the general manager of the private members-only Hermitage Club at Haystack Mountain, the only private ski resort in the eastern United States. The ski area includes 45 trails and 28 acres of glades on a 1,400-foot vertical drop. Prior to taking the top job at Hermitage Club, he spent 23 years in leadership roles at Mountain Creek, New Jersey. Bill Benien is my guest. Bill, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Stuart. Glad to spend time with you. First of all, Bill, how has life been treating you in the age of COVID? Have you stayed safe, healthy, and sane over these past eight or nine months? Uh, so far, so good on most accounts, trying to stay sane. I think you know, we're all COVID fatigued, um, prone to the occasional, I can't believe I left my mask in the car, having to run <laughs> back to get it, uh, you know, thinking long and hard about every trip and every interaction. It, it's, a, it's an odd world. Who would have thought? And I'm really curious what we feel like and look like when we look back at this, you know, three years, five years on, uh, what this time in history will mean to us. Well, it definitely won't blur together like so many other periods of our lives where we're like, oh, what year was that? We're always going to remember 2020 when we see those mask pictures or, or what have you. Um, so let's get right into Hermitage Club. Uh, let's start by catching up with a little recent history. In 2018, the Vermont Department of Taxes shut the club down because it owed more than a million dollars in back taxes. It then sat empty for two years, but now it has new owners. Who are those new owners and how did we get here? Well, uh, it's a bit unique as uh, as clubs go overall. Uh, So the owners are the 181 mostly former members who formed an ownership group and successfully bid for the assets uh, back in February with a bid of $8 million and and change. Uh, And that sale closed in May, um, May 13. Um, So it's it's a volunteer board-driven 501c7 Vermont nonprofit social club organization. Uh, So it's, you know, it's it's member-owned, not that we um, trade on that a lot, but I think it will significantly change the approach to the club, the strategy, the raison d'etre, why folks are there, and how it grows in the future. You know, it was all a bit surreal how that went down. It was at the height of the pandemic when the sale was announced, and the whole world was shut down, the whole ski industry was shut down, and it, it, it sounded from all of the news that was coming out that Hermitage Club was being sold off in pieces. All of a sudden, it has new owners. Uh, how surprising was it just to get that done right in the heart of the pandemic? Uh, well, you know, it was sort of right on the leading edge, right? It was uh, March 13, I think, is the date most people look at as kind of when the nation stopped. Um, and, and so the lead up was early in the winter uh, with the, um, you know, the bidding in February. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was right on the front. And I think if we you know, think back to that time period, we were all uh, homebound, but, but I think we mostly felt this is a short temporary period and by and large, most businesses were trying to figure out how do we keep rolling ahead. It, it's looking back in retrospect, 
that it all seems, as you said, you know, a little bit surreal. But at the time, I, I don't think it really uh, uh, occurred to anyone that it was, you know, sort of too far out of the ordinary other than just a long time coming. So last I read, club founder Jim Barnes was challenging the results of that outcome where this group of members came together and bought the club. Uh, what is the status of those challenges, Bill? Uh, well, he actually took a couple of runs at that. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, and uh, we prefer to look ahead rather than back. But they've all been dismissed at this point, including the last um, the, the last appeal effort. And, and I would suspect that that's probably you know the the end of that. The bankruptcy sale had been executed, transfer had of uh, ownership had happened, um, and I guess you know, the only speculation I've had is you know can, can you imagine if a bankruptcy sale was reversed, what that would mean, uh, you know, for business uh, throughout, throughout the country. So I don't, I don't think there's any more um, to be seen of this. So it sounds like it's full speed ahead. Uh, under Barnes, the club was consistently in legal trouble and scrutiny of one kind or another. I don't want to dwell on the past either and dig up all the specifics of that, but how important is it to the new owners, Bill, that the Hermitage Club be operated with integrity and stay on the good side of state and local regulators and officials? Oh, well, that's a little bit of a softball, Stuart, because, of course, <laughs> you know, it's incredibly important. You know, the human piece of this, um, there was a lot of what we call splatter in the wake of the club's closure, and actually for a long time before the closure. You know, vendors that went unpaid, you know, projects that we have inherited that were incomplete, uh, installations left unfinished, you know, for the same reason. Uh, members who put money down for townhomes that were started but left unbuilt. Um, you know, at its zenith, there were more than 500 uh, legit members you know, paying dues uh, in, in good faith, and uh, quite a few of them bought into ancillary investments that Jim was offering, uh, various real estate in the Valley and, and other opportunities. Um, you know, and they all got hit pretty badly, including you know, a lot of the local tradesmen and vendors, and we're sensitive to that. You know, it's difficult, as you know, uh, after a bankruptcy sale, the name is the same. You know, legally, it's the Hermitage Members Club, Inc., but, you know, front-facing, it's the Hermitage Club. A lot of the faces of the members are the same. The difference is they're owners now, and before they were just paying customers, um, you know, really. Uh, you know, so there have been some awkward moments with local vendors, but by and large, the community uh, is behind this. Um, you know, there were a lot of employees, I'm sure, with the best intentions who were trying to do their jobs and the best they could without clear direction or funds or the tools and supplies that they needed. Uh, so I think it, it, it was a tough environment. One of the recognizing how important that is and the inherent tension between a resort and a resort town. You know, one relies on the other, and it's always an insider-outsider type relationship. And sooner or later, likely one betrays the other to some degree, and typically it's going to be the resort that betrays the local township. Um, and this was a huge betrayal. You know, uh, I, it's not fair to psychoanalyze Jim in retrospect. The stories I've heard about when this really started, when there were 50 people gathered at the bar at the Hermitage Inn, before there were construction trailers, before there were condos acting as temporary offices, you know, at the very origination of Jim Barnes Hermitage Club, um, you know, my impression is that 
this was a wonderfully audacious, imaginative, passionate enterprise. And I would guess perhaps as things went along, as we say in the industry, it's a little bit shop-worn phrase, but uh, Jim got over his ski tips and just too much, too far, too soon, too fast without substance behind it to fund it. Um, and, and my observation is there was a tendency when a problem needs to be solved, there's not enough housing for prospective members. Well, instead of making a deal with the local lodging establishment, the answer was to go buy the local inn. You know, and Jim bought a lot of mm. it. Uh, same with restaurants, to be able to feed people and provide social amenities, you know, and all, all the way to buying the local airport, right? which I don't know if that was necessary or not, um, but it all became part of this big swirling world. So when the Hermitage Club, you know, under Jim folded, so did all those other businesses. And mm. that was devastating for the local economy because it wasn't just the club on the hill that wasn't operating. Um, you know, it, it was a number of the inns down in town and storefronts and, and restaurants. Um, it really had quite an impact. One of the, all that understood, uh, you know, one of the very first things we did, literally within days of taking possession, was self-report. Uh, and that was to the state of Vermont, the Agency of Natural Resources, and, and the Act 250 folks. Um, you know, we wanted to take out a lift and, you know, looked at that and said, well, taking out a lift is, in, is as environmentally sensitive as putting one in. Um, mm -hmm. We need to do this by the book and tell somebody about it. Uh, and that was the beginning of repairing our relationship. You know, and, and besides the taxes, you know, Jim was kind of known for uh, seeking forgiveness rather than permission. And you can get away with that mm -hmm. once if you blunder and make a, uh, an honest mistake and cut something down where you shouldn't be supposed to cut it down. But there was a lot of that activity. Uh, and so there was you know, dozens of Open Act 250 permits, some that looked very similar to each other. It was very confusing. We spent a lot of time kind of sorting things out and basically saying, hey, listen, guys, you know, we're in the ski business and we're not burying nuclear waste. Uh, so let us tell you what we want to do with this club going forward. We recognize it's been to the past. That wasn't us but we know that there's um, some raw wounds from that. Um, and we're here to seek to repair those the best we can and, and move forward. Um, so with you know, help of qualified civil engineers and real estate-minded uh, attorneys, and we started to knit all those various permits and chart a path to improve the property with some sense of urgency, but in compliance with all the regulations and processes. You know, we're straight players. Those regulations are onerous, no doubt. But without exception, everyone we've dealt with has been reasonable within the extent of their guidelines. And I have to say for the local community, which, um, you know, is tight, trying to get a tradesman, trying to get a plumber or an electrician uh, is tough in the Valley. That said, everyone we have called has been responsive and helped us get this thing up and going again, because it's in the best interest of, of the entire uh, you know economy in that area. It sounds like, the shutdown was just absolutely catastrophic because of the structure of the old club and the way that it owned everything. So as you've come in, how difficult has it been to re-earn the trust of the local community and convince them, look, this time is different. I know it's the same name, uh, but we are approaching this from a whole different, with a whole different set of values and with a whole different attitude, and we're not going to sell it to town this time. Well, you know, time will tell. 
I think we have, um, you know, the, the board of directors were driven by a nine-member board. Um, 85% or so of our membership have primary or second homes in the Valley. Um, you know, quite a few of them um, live here full-time year-round. Uh, there's uh, folks who are engaged in the volunteer fire department, uh, who are in de- engaged in, you know, uh, local businesses and have invested uh, to help the local community in, in some of their um, you know, retail and, and recreation businesses around the area. So there's some close-knit. That said, it's natural under any circumstances to have some distrust of you know, the weekenders, the outsiders, and particularly at this time in COVID you know, where there's some natural uh, – xenophobia would be a strong word, but let's say – you know, some cautious eyeing of the license plates coming in. And mm. I think, you know, not to, not to go on a tangent, but Governor Scott's been good at recognizing, and, and I think our community's been good at recognizing that the license plates may not be green, um, but they're here almost as full-timers, and, and people are being pretty, um, you know, pretty respectful of each other in terms of behaviors. Um, certainly what I saw over the summer uh, we had a lot of families who probably had never spent so much time in Vermont who came up for the duration, you know, uh, quarantined, did their thing, were there all the way until school started back in their home communities. Um, but I think it will take time. You know, uh, the, the proof will be in our behaviors uh, and how, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not something you can repair overnight. Um, we pay our bills. Uh, we hire local. And, um, you know, our plan is pretty straightforward and simple. The, 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 the driving ethos is this is a scheme and social club. Um, so sort of to you know, get back to that broad swath of all the businesses that went along with it, the assets that the members bought are the operating ski area, um, you know, all the lifts and snowmaking and all the plants and whatnot, um, the extraordinary lodge uh, at, at the base, four inns, uh, the golf course, Haystack Golf Course, and all of the real estate um, development rights under the Act 250 permit. One of the first things we did was to divest the non-core assets. So the golf course was first, where uh, the gentleman, John Calantis, who's been managing it for years, um, together with some partners, bought it, took it back to public status, which was a huge benefit um, you know, to, to everybody that liked that golf course in the community and outside folks coming in and, and driving tourism. Um, they had a lot of work to do to repair it. It's in great shape. You know, they're doing a killer job. Um, so there's one very happy man in a happy community. Uh, three out of the four inns that came with the property were sold within the first 90 days. Um, two of them have already been renovated and are back into operation. The third one is, is in the works. Uh, needs a lot of work, but that's going to become part of a um, sort of a budget level motel and community center. So we're very happy about that. Again, working with the community to do something that's uh, important to everyone. And the last one is the historic Hermitage Inn, um, which really kind of started this whole thing. And uh, frankly, while that one's on the market, and we've had a lot of bidders get close. It's close to the heart of the club. It's a big part of uh, the members' experience. And um, so it's been a little bit of waffling. We still have it. 
It's on the market. Um, you know, it's not necessary to our operation. We want to be very careful about who buys it to work hand-in-hand together because they are linked. We have a, a list that runs back and forth to the inn for Apre and for, for lunch visits. Um, we have tubing and ice skating and, you know, a bunch of other amenities that we operate on their property, on that property. Um, so that one's kind of close to us. So it really leaves us as an operating ski area, you know, social club uh, with some great amenities and holding on to a whole bunch of real estate for development. Our bylaws prohibit us from putting the members' money into real estate development. However, mm-hmm. we are the Act 250 permit. So one way or another, we're in a joint venture-like partnership um, with a developer or developers to be selected to work together to build out the right kind of um, housing for the membership and for anybody else. There's no requirement to uh, be in the club to build real estate or vice versa. You know, you don't, you don't need to buy real estate to be in the club. Um, there are plenty of folks right on the mountain at the base who are not members and uh, lots of, it's the number one driver for most of the prospects um, is where am I going to live? You know, what's being built, what's available in the Valley, the summer of COVID in the Deerfield river Valley uh, has, pretty much cleaned out all the inventory, mm. just like, you know, lots of uh, escapist areas. So hey. there's a lot of pressure to focus on that area sooner rather than later. So it sounds like you've really refocused on the skiing. And to that end, one of the first moves that the new club owners undertook was to contract the Schaefer family, who were the longtime owners of Berkshire East and Catamount down in Massachusetts, to consult on operations. Why did they engage the Schaefers, and what is their role at the mountain? Um, well, I think the why is, um, you know, the profile of, of a lot of our members and of the uh, interim leadership group, the interim board that spearheaded the purchase. Um, you've got, you know, lawyers, bankers, entrepreneurs, deal makers, um, you know, great group of talented Folks who bring a lot of uh, experience to the table. What you don't have is anybody who knows about ski operations. Um, and so there was a uh, sort of social connection through the Connecticut region with Jim Shaker, uh, mm-hmm. with some of those members. And I think there was some loose affiliation even, even prior at the old club. Uh, and so as would be natural, uh, there started to be some discussions about, you know, what would you do with this? What do we need to know? Um, how big a lift is this? How much is it going to cost to rehabilitate uh, the mountain and get it going again? You know, is this a crazy Don Quixote run at a windmill, or does this thing really have uh, legs? And, and so that just kind of flowed naturally into an advisory role um, to assess the on-mountain access, uh, you know, uh, spearhead the repairs, um, develop a strategy for upgrades, particularly in snowmaking, and, you know, get it up and running uh, which honestly, I think the original expectation was it'll take a full year to do this. You know, we've obviously accelerated that pathway to be, you know, opening. You know, we project next weekend, uh, middle yeah. of December. Right. Anyone who's watched the Shapers knows they don't do anything slowly. Uh, they're very fast to move and very fast to improve their mountains. Um, they're actually playing a similar role down at Bosquet, and and I hosted their GM and new owner on the podcast a couple weeks ago. And the transformation that that little mountain in the Berkshires has undergone in an off season is remarkable. 
Um, so I'd imagine they also helped orchestrate that chairlift move because the triple chair that was at Hermitage Club went down to Biscay, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Uh, but what is it about the Schaefer's bill that makes them trusted advisors for folks who are trying to rehabilitate ski areas who may not have the experience in running ski areas? Um, besides whatever's in the water in Western Massachusetts, uh, <laughs> and I say that with some pride, I grew up in Greenfield at the foot of the Mohawk Trail there, right down the road from nice. Berkshire East. And, you know, so here's the connection. Um, you know, if anyone who knows Roy Schaefer, uh, John and Jim's dad, um, you know, no, he's, he's seen it all and been through every era of development of snowmaking and technology. Um, you know, uh, like a lot of smaller ski area operators, it's about being scrappy, about being very hands-on, practical. Um, you, you know, you've got to think fast and, uh, you know, pivot, adjust, adapt, uh, you know, where you can and, and have a deep Rolodex. Oh, there's an old word, uh, you know, but have a, a deep <laughs> list of contacts and, you know, who do I know that can help me solve this thing? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think my relationship with the Schaefer's, well, that's how it started. You know, the first jobs I had in skiing were working for Roy Schaefer at Berkshire East. It's kind of where I spent every living moment uh, that I wasn't <laughs> supposed to be in class and, uh, you know, stayed in touch when I got into the, to the ski business uh, well, my dad had passed, but you know, looking for uh, a mentor to turn to to make the decision: is this the right lifestyle and industry I want to be in? You know, Roy was the guy. Uh, our family stayed in touch with the mountains, so you know, I've kind of always watched what's happening at Haystack. It was one of the go-to's as, as a skiing family uh, for us to, to in Southern Vermont, and seeing what was transpiring with the sale, you know, was kind of a an easy connection. Uh, we think alike. We finish each other's sentences. There's kind of a shorthand. Um, so it's been a, a natural, um, you know, kind of a natural effort here. Uh, I love rehabilitation, you know, taking something from what it is to what it could be. Uh, and, and I think Jim and John are kind of have that same gene- genealogy of, uh, you know, taking a look at something and, you know, what are, what are the three most impactful things you can do to make this better um, and and attack it with passion. So you took the GM job uh, early summer. When did you actually come on? Uh, June 1st. So take the GM role, got a huge amount of work ahead of you working with the Schaefer's to to make all that happen. Uh, How did you go about putting the team together that would run the place? Were a lot of the former employees available or did you just start over? Uh, Yes and yes Uh, uh, is is the answer. You know, it took, um, during the receivership, there were a number of uh, employees that stayed with the property. And I give them a lot of credit for doing that because who knew where this was going to go? You know, who knows what that means for a career? Um, John Clantis and and, uh, a couple of the golf guys kind of kept an eye both on on the golf course, but also on the the larger ski property. Uh, One of the real estate folks, most importantly, Aaron Sherritt, who's the mountain operator, and Bob Adams, who's the head lift uh, head of, of lift mechanics, stayed on and had taken care of uh, the equipment, you know, without investing in parts and, and doing a lot of the regular periodic maintenance you would do, but you know, making sure it wasn't going to uh, wither on the vine. So when I came in, 
we sold the golf course, so the, you know, that group was gone. We're not in real estate at this time, you know, so that group uh, was gone. But, um, you know, first day of June, it was myself and Aaron and Bob, and Aaron and Bob were on the mountain. So I had a 90,000-square-foot building pretty much to myself for the first 60 days or so. Um, and that, that first 60 days was really about figuring out what is this business and what are the holes I need to fill because I know it's not the business it was before. Also called the Hermitage Club, but a very different business. You know, this one's primarily skiing and social, and we'll see about what else we do with it. Summer programming, you know, how much our hand is in uh, real estate, but it was really about getting the asset going. So it wasn't uh, as simple as just picking up the old org chart, seeing who was available and plugging them back in. You know, as I said before, and as I learned through the summer, because either I would hunt people down, you know, for information and what do you know and what can you share, or people found me and say they're interested Mm -hmm. in coming back. Um, And and I was able to glean a lot from that. And, you know, I found that there were a lot of people who were very passionate about the job, who were very excited about new ownership because they felt, um, as any of us who have been in an acquisition uh, situation know, maybe the new guys will see my idea with value and actually give me the tools and the support I need to to do my job well. Um, So it's a lot of that. But slow and steady really is is the answer and playing a lot of who do we know that can wear multiple hats. We're a very small team. Uh, So Mike Reichard, who came to me um, from uh, Montage at Deer Valley and and Four Seasons Jackson Hole, um, excellent front of house, club-oriented, high level of custom service, um, yeah, I call him Mr. Inside. He's responsible for everything that happens at building member service and, and, uh, and the infrastructure. But the guy also does a pretty good job of driving a cat and running a mini X. You know, so everybody we hired kind of had to answer that need of how many hats can you wear both in an operating season? Can I call upon you in an emergency to run a snow cat? Because that's the situation we're in. Um, and how might we use you in the off season, which still has a lot of uh, defining to do? So we're we're 12. That's our entire staff, uh, full time year round, and uh, and the rest is seasonal. So long term here, Bill. What is your vision for the Hermitage Club? Well, my vision relies, you know, on direction from the owners, the, the members. It's uh, it's their vision, and and, and there's a ton of opportunity. I'll say, you know, it started at the core of we're a ski area that's going to operate 47 days, weekends and holidays, um, and uh, we really don't know about the rest. So let's just start there. That was kind of the pitch to me. (laughs) I blithely went right along with that and immediately realized, (laughs) well, 47 days. I mean, come on. You know, we we can get 70 days out of this. Um, And the only reason it's not more is we don't operate Monday through Thursday. You know, it really – that part of being a ski area because it's membership only. Um, and, you know, and a, a point on that, because many people don't know or realize that in 2005, uh, when Mount Snow sold Haystack, um, which it had owned and, and operated together with Mount Snow for, you know, for a number of years, there's a, a deed restriction, a codice law on that, that um, it had to be private. It could not hmm. serve as a day ticket public um, ski area. Wow. Uh, so that, you know, the idea of that being a private mountain didn't just come out of passion and imagination 
uh, there was a very practical uh, reason that started. Um, so, you know, and the benefit of not operating Monday through Thursday, the snowmaking guys and the snow surface guys love it because they really get to work with the snow, you know, and they're not forced into trying to hammer at it and quickly get open for the next day. We've got some luxury. And we've got those days that the mountain can be rented out privately, um, you know, whether it's a corporation or, or just a, you know, a group that um, have the means to um, put it together. A year like this in COVID, you know, it's probably a, a great opportunity. It's not something we've advertised openly uh, because it's a startup. You know, we have four things here. You know, it's a startup. We're going into the season. We're not the best weather to start up. It would be really nice to be on top of this and have a lot of snow right now. It's COVID and everything that that brings with it. Um, you know, and despite uh, a significant unemployment rate, labor is tight everywhere, everywhere, as any operator of any kind of hospitality operation will tell you. You know, labor is tough. So we're taking it in small steps. But back to your question, you know, vision for the future. Um, growth, we're uh, – you know, 181 members bought it. We're up uh, around – we've grown about 15%. We're at 210. We actually capped the membership this year at 230. And mm. uh, I've offered uh, a trial membership so that people can get their feet in. We know people are a little uh, – have some trepidation because they don't know what the state of Vermont's doing around COVID. They also know they're probably not getting on a plane and, and flying to Vail this year. And mm-hmm. the typical profile uh, of a member – um, a year's worth of the Hermitage Club is probably about what they're spending on their, their big 10-day vacation out west uh, anyway. So it, it's, a, it's a nice go-to with less density, a controlled audience. You know, yes, people are coming from, you know, various areas, and, and it's a little bit awkward this year with me to do the quarantine thing, uh, but you know who your audience is. You know, it's, it's a little, little more controlled. Um, I think there's great opportunity at the club for – um, summer programming. You know, we sit uh, the uh, reservoir right there in Wilmington, Harriman Reservoir. It's there, you know, great boating. It's southern Vermont. I mean, what's what's not to like? <laughs> right. And, uh, and the profile of the membership, it's families. It's all built around families. Uh, and uh, creating experiences for those folks is going to be great. Our bylaws cap us at 500. The sweet spot is like 350. That's where I think the mm-hmm. thing is really going to hum, and it's not a big jump to get from here to there. Uh, we have a, a five-year growth plan that gets us there at about year three, and, and we're well on the way. We're right on pace, despite everything in, that's been a challenge this year. So you have a plan. You have committed ownership group. You have interest from the public. Uh, there are some skeptics out there. In his book, Ski Inc. 2020, Chris Diamond was skeptical that the private ski resort model could work in the eastern U.S. And I, I want to read you a passage from that book, Bill. Um, but before I do, I, I will point out and acknowledge that Chris was the GM at Mount Snow for almost 20 years, including a period of years during which Mount Snow managed Haystack as the Hermitage Club ski area was known when it was a public ski area. So he does know the region and the mountain very well. Uh, he, he devoted three full pages in that book to the backstory of the Hermitage Club and its failure but I'll read his closing thoughts. Quote, if someone can acquire Haystack for a deeply discounted number, it's still questionable whether the private club model can be resurrected. It was just too much, too fast, with no financial discipline. From the outside, it looked like the classic, too good to be true, and it was. With better management, 
could it have succeeded? We have no way of knowing, and that's the big problem. Prior members would have to step back and put in more cash, possibly substantially more cash, and so much hinges on successful real estate sales, while the strength of the New England resort market is still uncertain. Could Haystack have a future as a standalone ski area? I'm not sure how it could begin to compete with Mount Snow, given the significant enhancements there in the last decade. There don't appear to be a lot of good options for whoever winds up with the assets, end quote. So keeping in mind, Bill, that that was written pre-pandemic in a very different world, what's your reaction to that? Wow. That's a heavy thought this morning, Stuart. <laughs> uh, I'll say this first. Huge respect for Chris. Loved his book. It, it was a great uh, walk through, for an Easterner in particular, through uh, you know, a period of time that we were all watching and, and part of all those changes and ASC and everything else. You know, it was fantastic. And, and sort of as a side note, my brother, who's an engineer, um, uh, did a little bit of a project with Chris at one point, creating a, like a trail mapping system so you could predict the effect of, say, putting in a new lift, what would happen to trail densities and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, big, big props for Chris. So from that perspective, uh, sure. I, I think that's kind of a natural conclusion. Uh, if, if Haystack Mountain, uh, which deserves to, you know, it, it, it's a light under a bushel. You know, it's a, it's a great little southern Vermont mountain with nice exposure, fun trails, great glades, um, and a lot of history, which I think you probably know. And it's just so many names and uh, what's attached to Haystack. Um, could it survive today head-to-head with Mount Snow next door? I don't know. I mean, you know Mount Snow uh, serves a lot of customers. And during the co-ownership, you know, Haystack was the go-to for a less crowded experience. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of families, weekends and holidays, there's going to go. Before the Mount Snow acquisition, Haystack kind of marketed itself in the same way as the not anti, but, but the other alternative to Mount Snow, uh, you know, at its inception, it, it's always been promoted as a little bit of like 7-Up, <laughs> the Uncola, a little <laughs> bit different than the others. At its inception, it was uh, the, the dining room was uh, a fine French cuisine menu. You know, it had a discotheque called Sergeant Peppers. Yeah, it, it was always a little bit off the norm. Um, point of pride, maybe. Maybe that's why I like it. I think, you know, Chris's perspective was probably looking at it, um, you know, it is southern Vermont, so ski conditions are variable. You're susceptible to the weather. That's not the biggest place. And as as Jim presented it and was developing it, you know, his model relied a lot on the real estate to underwrite the expenses of the club. And, again, I wasn't involved. I haven't spent a lot of time in the financial history because some of it gobbledygook is about, you know, the best I can come up with. You know, there's just not a lot to be learned from the old income statements and accounting other than just sheer spending. Um, And and you can see where the money was going. Uh, But I suspect it was always, well, if you sell more real estate, that's okay. It's going to work out in the end um, type of approach. If you pull that away, which is by and large, what this current group has done is that it cannot be about the real estate. 
The reason we're here is mostly, there are some empty nesters, but mostly it's um, people who are fortunate and of means with young families who want a weekend refuge to get away, uh, to socialize. I, I can see the camaraderie, the congeniality, the, the relationships that are built there and uh, are maintained because of the club. That's really important. If, you know, if you put it on the board, you can say it's, it's 50-50 skiing and social. I dare to say it's 40-60 skiing and social. It is a lot about the social. And if, if that's the case, you know, maybe it's got a, a better shot at it. The direction I've been given also is to be realistic. Not austerity, but the operating budget, it is what it is. There's no play money, fake money, uh, you know, we hope there's money later. It is what it is. It's supported by the annual dues. Um, it's a modest budget for a 200-acre ski area with four lifts. Um, that will grow as the membership grows. But there's the days of everything needs to be gold-plated, the highest tech, the best, the biggest, the farthest, the loudest, all the SSS type approach to it, um, you, you know, are, are gone. It's reflected a bit in our, this year, startup and COVID. Like everybody else, we've had to dramatically uh, refocus our food and beverage. But even back in May and June when we were talking about this, uh, before we, you know, realized this is still what we would be doing, our approach was not uh, duck confit at lunch or lobster thermidor. <laughs> it was the best three cheese, Vermont cheese, by the way, grilled cheese sandwich that you can get because, guys, it's a ski area. Right. That's what it is. It's got the most outrageous ski lodge you, know, you can imagine. Not necessarily designed for the most efficient operation, but it's beautiful, and it's got a lot of amenities. You know, and, and take that and enjoy it, you know, love it. But let's not try to, uh, you know, be, be bigger than we are. It doesn't need to be ostentatious. It doesn't need to be over the top. Um, so I think that kind of bodes well. If, if we can maintain that, um, you know, and that's clearly the conversation we have with prospects uh, is, yes, there is valet parking at the front door, which, by the way, you pay for as a member if that's what you want. There's a lot of folks who live on the mountain who bring their snowmobiles to come to the mountain, or they're simply ski and ski out. Yeah, so it, it's different for the members depending, you know, what you're looking for. But the, the common denominator is let's keep it simple. Let's keep the focus on the snow. Let's keep the focus on a safe, uh, you know, less dense, uncrowded, unhurried uh, atmosphere on the mountain. Uh, let's have a great ski school program, you know, and turn kids into really strong skiers. Uh, and let's create a nice social atmosphere inside. I'm so much looking forward to next year when we can do that properly. But, uh, you know, we know that's why people are coming. So let's, let's uh, invigorate it and, and create those experiences for folks. It sounds like you've really rethought the entire model of the business. And I would be curious when he gets around to it to read Chris's thoughts on the sustainability of that. Um, so lay this out for us, Bill, as far as let's talk about membership. What is the initiation fee and what are the annual dues? What does it take to become a member there? Okay. Initiation is 50000 and the annual dues are $15,000. Um, like I said, typically it's a family with young kids. 
you know, and, and so you probably, you've got a good long tenure by the time your kids are off in college. Uh, it hasn't had a long enough run to see where the tail end is, where members mm-hmm. may uh, phase out. But I think we can project that, you know, folks are in it, let's say, for a decade. So if you amortize that out and the number of scheme days available to you and the number of people who already have homes up there uh, and start working it backwards, you can make a case. It's not terribly far off the mark of what you'd pay for a window rate ticket, um, you know, at a large eastern ski resort anyways. And put that in perspective with, you know, a trip to Vail. I've had prospects, that's literally what they've said when they come in is, well, I've decided I'm not going to, I, I don't mean to just, Vail is my representation for any big western ski trip. So, <laughs> I get it. Sorry, I want to be clear <laughs> about that. Um, but an awful lot of our members go to Vail. Yeah, and I've had right. people come in and say, listen, I'm just not doing that this year for all the obvious reasons. This is easy. I can drive from Boston, you know, New York, northern Jersey, Connecticut. I'm here in three hours. And uh, what's not to like about that? Is this a family membership? So a husband and wife joining, for example, are they each paying dues or or is this it covers your family, your kids? It, it's, it's one membership for the entire family. Um, and, and so, yeah, if you're empty nesters, uh, it's, it's the same price as if you have four kids. Um, and kids are defined, you no longer become a kid under that family membership on your 25th birthday. So that's, um, that's a pretty good value, I would say. Are there considerations for membership beyond the ability to pay that 50 grand up front and the 15000 per year? Mm, no. Nope. All, everybody's welcome. Aside from ski access, what else does that membership come with? Uh, well, that's the big driver, obviously. Uh, the lodge amenities, um, you know, we have, uh, we have a movie theater. We have great fitness center, uh, uh, spa, you know, facial therapy, massage therapy uh, center, um, you know, the dining, you know, great opportunities. Uh, we have both the Summit Lodge and the Mid-Mountain Lodge that, are used in the evenings for private dinner parties. You go by Snowcat um, up on the mountain for you know, special occasions every weekend. Um, and, and whatever programming we come up with uh, for summertime access as well. Now, obviously, dining and retail and uh, rentals for your guests and, and those bits uh, are all a la carte um, costs beyond the basic membership, right? like it would be at any country club. Uh, it's really a winter country club or yacht club. It's the best way to think about it. So those 181 former members who banded together to buy the place, were they grandfathered in or did they have to re-up that initiation fee? Oh, uh, no, not grandfathered. And, and not only did they need to re-up the initiation fee, you know, essentially that's what got it launched. That's, they contributed um, to the $8 million purchase to get it up and going. Uh, it, it's pretty egalitarian. You know, I guess there's, there's what we call the founders group. It's the 181 that started it, and then the new members who have joined since. But the costs and the benefits are pretty much the same. Like there's, some, there's some differentiation in, in the lockers, for instance. Um, but a new member can buy into the better lockers. You know, no problem. Wait, wait, everybody, <laughs> it, it's all for one, all you know, one for all, all for one, I guess, as I say, that, that is really important um, that it, it has seen as, you know, one, uh, one group with a, with a common 
reason for being there. Is there any way to ski the club if you're not a member? There is not, other than being a guest of a member. How many guests does each member get? Is there like daily allotment, a season allotment? Uh, I'll be honest. It will it will change as we start up, and you know, unfortunately, uh, because we're faced with COVID, the membership has agreed to start up this season. We're not bringing guests in um, mm. while we get our feet under us, while we evaluate the um, you know any holiday surge or spikes in coronavirus, um, and get the machine running. You know, literally the machine, although we been running lifts and making snow, but you know, getting the operation going, the technology, our, all of our tracking that's necessary uh, to meet the Vermont uh, COVID regulations. Uh, you know, we, we didn't feel it was prudent or responsible to just bring more load into that uh, environment until we understand better you know, what's, what's happening. So the board has put, a, put it, uh, the guest policy on hiatus until we get through the holidays and can reevaluate. And we've seen uh, similar actions at some of the other clubs at, at Stowe Club, which is not bringing in guests, and uh, Stratton, which I think is in the same kind of let's wait and see uh, evaluation uh, timetable that, that we're on. So let's talk about the mountain. Uh, just before that group of former members purchased the ski area, the Barnstormer six-pack was actually up for auction. And my understanding is that Boyne had an offer and was ready to yank that thing off the mountain. And, and Boyne loves their six-packs. So um, you held on to it. How crucial was it that the Barnstormer re- remained in place for the mountain to reopen? Critical. You know, if, if that were taken out, you know, in retrospect, it would have had to follow all the same uh, Act 250 processes that we went through for the hay fever uh, triple that went to Bousquet. Um, yikes. Yeah, it's the only chair to the summit. And replacing it, uh, besides being costly, would have been a lengthy process. It certainly would have made the asset overall you know, a less attractive purchase because now you're guaranteed you're probably not getting open for the first winter. And so you'd have those carrying costs. You know, reflecting back, as I mentioned earlier, about the, the deed restriction on, on the property, um, you know, the best and highest use and the one that preserves the value for the community, preserves the real estate values, is as an operating ski area. And, uh, you know, again, because I wasn't in that acquisition process and my focus is on moving forward and getting this up and going, but, you know, I think there were some interested parties that had other uses in mind for it that essentially would have shut down, you know, the ski trails and let it go fallow, um, which would have been just an absolute shame. Um, You know, pull the lift out and that's the direction. It's almost guaranteed it would have to go. So as you said earlier, you did pull that hay fever triple out, uh, and that's now down at Biscay. Uh, they flew towers for that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, did you lose anything in losing the hay fever triple, or, or was it really a redundant lift with Barnstormer in place? Uh, yeah, that was our feeling. It had become redundant. You, you know, it was a tough decision because we need to make it, had to make it in time. In fact, we were engaged in that before I even officially started. But, um, you know, there was a lot of weighing in the pros and cons. Uh, once the barnstormer was built, the, the hay fever did not go to the summit. It went as far as Mid Mountain Lodge, and, and so ostensibly it was there because that's how you would get to Moon Mountain. It was also supposed to be for the ski school and ski racing to keep them off of the barnstormer. But the fact is, 
uh, everyone said, oh, you know, we hate that chair. We won't ride it. <laughs> and it barely, rarely uh, was ridden. I mean, gosh, you've got, you know, a Lamborghini here on your left. And then, you know, you got your dad's secondhand hand-me-down Chevy on your right. You know, which, which do you want to ride in? Um, you know, so there was that bit of it. Um, it it's having the hay fever out significantly improves that trail. Um, that's going to ski really nice, and you get some good tree-line to tree-line turns now. And finally, it needed a lot of repair. Um, and so we were, you know, into the well, into the six figures uh, for repairs on that. And it just didn't seem like – it certainly isn't something we were going to attack in the first season of trying to get open. You know, it was way down on the list, um, given that we had, you know, four other chairs that are integral to the operation – and so it was going to likely sit at least another year. Um, why, why put money into it? You know, the, the market was there. Uh, it was a good connection. Um, and, and frankly, it served as a really good introduction to the Act 250 process and all those relationships. If it hadn't been that chair, it would have been something else. Um, so it, it was kind of the perfect project to uh, cut our teeth on and, and reinvigorate those relationships. So that leaves you with the Barnstormer 6, Stag's Leap Quad, the Witch's Triple, the Tag Quad, and the Beginner Toe. What kind of condition is that lift fleet in in general? Was it pretty well maintained for the two years that the mountain was dormant? Um, yeah. Kudos to the guys. You know, they, they maintained it. Um, you know, they, they, they turned stuff. They kept the, um, the you know, the bonnets heated, uh, tried to protect the rubber and the belts. Um, you know, I give them a lot of, of credit and we were better off for it. Um, the, the witches triple is uh, in great shape. You know, it's an, it's an older chair. We had Ross Stevens in and gave it a thorough physical, um, got a lot of life in her. Uh, so I, I don't see anything changing there. I think we're pretty happy with the lift layout. And looking long-term, do you think the lift system is complete or are there upgrades or additions you'd like to see down the road? Uh, you know, it, it might be nice to have uh, a T-bar at some point you know, for ski school, racing, you know, maybe for those early and late season if we, if we placed it carefully uh, for limited terrain. Um, you know, we're just, now that we feel we've got our arms around opening the operating ski area and opening um, the operations of the lodge and all that entails and getting the points of sale system working correctly and, um, you know, all that stuff that happens. Uh, we're starting to turn our attention to the real estate. There's a master plan. You know, a master plan is, is really just you know, boxes on a map um, that in concept of a campus are approved in general. Each project then needs to go through its approval process. And it shows a number of hotels, including one, on the, on the northern piece of the property that would contemplate uh, a chairlift for ski in, ski out on uh, an, an old lift line called Oh No. Um, and that's interesting. I don't think we're, we're just starting to look at it. So I'm not sure that we know whether that hotel gets built, whether it gets built in that location. There's also some single-family homes on that hillside, uh, which would be extraordinary probably somewhat expensive to develop because it's got to get around the trail network there. Um, so we'll see. It's it certainly, yeah, it, it's way premature 
to put it into the budget and start planning for it. But the opportunity is there. So let's talk about the snowmaking system. Vail came in and bought 41 guns off the mountain to move those over to Mount Snow last year in, a, in an auction. How big of a loss was that? And were you able to replace those assets or did you need to? Um, not, not a great loss. Uh, I mean, we've, we've got over you know, 300 guns, a uh, bunch of carriage fans, a uh, lot of HKD towers. Um, we don't have an inventory issue. Um, yeah, it's probably a perception issue. For some reason, that, that was a, a very uh, a visual transaction. <laughs> we get that question a lot. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that those particular guns were best matched to the mountain conditions anyways. So no, it, it really hasn't hampered us or, or bothered us in any way. Did you do any other work on the snowmaking system this off season? Um, a lot of, you know, periodic maintenance, um, going through every gun, you know, nozzles, O-rings, uh, valves, fittings, uh, you know, couplings, hose replacement. Probably the biggest piece is we put in about 4,000 feet of new pipe on a trail called Rocker. It was probably some of the original pipe put in, which I suspect was used uh, <laughs> when it was put in originally. Uh, <laughs> everything else, when we powered everything else up, uh, it, everything is held like a champ. Um, that was not a surprise when, when we lit that trail up and um, it was clear that uh, it, had a, it had a number of ruptures that were just, okay, let's strip it out and, and do that over. But other than that, knock on wood, we got really lucky that there were no big, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop type of surprises. Um, it, it's uh, uh, overall in great shape. In long term, do you have snowmaking upgrade goals? Do you, do you have a good water supply to be able to expand that system if you wanted to? Well, you know, it's always about capacity and pressure. So we have Mirror Lake, which is uh, about 15 million gallons. Uh, yeah, so that lake has to cycle a number of times through the season. Uh, in order to uh, provide enough water for snowmaking uh, for, for the full for the full mountain, that's recharged out of the cold brook. Um, you know that that works fine. Yeah, it's it's about capacity and, and pressure. Um, we're not. We talked about budget before. You know, we're realistic about our capital plan. Uh, we're not building anything that's a gold-plated model, but we've got, um, I think, a good outline for balancing investments over the next five years to improve our delivery onto the mountain, getting some um, higher pressures up top. And we'd like to see, you know, either the capacity of Mirror Lake grow um, or, or have a better recharge on that. Um, a couple of years ago, Mount Snow put in uh, inflatable weir for their uh, water storage um, system which works great and that's on the table uh, as a project for summer 2021 um, this season's all about monitoring the water flows and uh, we've already submitted our permits for that project so you know that's probably the first step um, yeah you know pumps and motors maybe taking a look at resizing compressors uh, down the road we'll take it in steady steps we have a pretty big trail footprint to cover 45 trails as we mentioned in the intro uh, will that full footprint come back online this season, and, and how well were those trails maintained over the past two years? Nature had its way with the trails. 
They were, <laughs> they were pretty grown in. Uh, we spent a couple of months with an AB mower, um, you know, cutting everything down and back. Um, there was a lot of hand-cutting work to do on the steeps and the glades. You know, the glades are fantastic. Um, it, short answer to your question, yes. Everything's planned to go and ready to go. We've got everything mown down. We continue to work on some of the growth that's coming from the sides, you know, focusing first around the snow guns and critical areas, uh, but we'll continue chipping away at that. Um, and over the next two summers, you know, I think we can do some cut and fill to improve some of the contours. Uh, we'll continue trimming it down to get, you know, a nice short nap in the fall so we can open quicker with less snow. Um, but, it, yeah, it's, it's all ready to go, and you know, let's hope Mother Nature brings us some of the natural stuff to fill in the trees. Uh, we've got a couple trails that are not serviced by snowmaking, and so we know those are we, – we get them if we can, but, you know, 95% of it's um, good to go. So long-term, is there any interest by the club in expanding that trail network, and is that even possible given the land that you own? Oh, it's, it's possible. It, it hasn't come up. Um, you know, our primary focus is to get what we own operating well, get it smooth, assess um, the comfortable carrying capacity, both on the mountain and in the facilities. You know, back to that, it's a social club as much as it's a ski club. Uh, you know, I suspect more of the call for investment will be uh, around buildings and amenities and services. Um, yeah, it just, and, you know, I, I want to be clear. I can't lay fault to a plan I didn't understand, uh, so I don't know where it's going. But, it, you know, it looks to me like um, in the interest of creating energy around the idea of the club and selling real estate, um, there's some things we have to go back and, and remediate. You know, there's, we're lacking a, a proper ski patrol building, a proper ski school building, um, you know, space for uh, maintenance work, proper shops. There's some very practical ski area operating things that kind of in the rush got lower priority, and we need to back up and, and backfill those things and you know, make sure we're able to service the members uh, on every front before we start thinking about expanding the trail system. Uh, we, we would like to improve the beginner access off the summit. You know, like a lot of mountains, the first, the first drop is a little bit uh, more than the typical beginner uh, is looking for. But, you know, that's not a, a big investment. Um, but we will, we will attack that next summer. So as you've mentioned, Bill, uh, Haystack, the mountain that the Hermitage Club sits on, has a long and interesting history. And it was a a public ski area for decades. It, at various times, it's been independent, and at various times, it was under shared ownership with Mount Snow. Uh, occasionally, it's at dormant. What can you tell us about the history of Haystack? Oh, so anyone that knows me knows I'm a, I'm a sucker for nostalgia, for better or for worse. Um, and, you know, I'm learning. You know, I, I was preteen when I skied Haystack, and, and mostly what I remembered was it had a really cool lodge, and it had a tunnel trail. And the tunnel trail is still there, but it's a lot smaller than what I remember. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I mean, it's, and I really felt when I came in that the Hermitage Club had so overwhelmed the sense of Haystack Mountain. 
you know, and it is the Hermitage Club at Haystack Mountain. Uh, and Haystack Mountain is, um, you know, for all the right reasons, I think the community still feels, you know, it's theirs. Uh, it, there's a lot of history there. Like I mentioned, uh, uh, Manton, the first GM, his daughter was the town clerk until recently, just retired. So, you know, hearing the stories of how the trails were named, um, you know, why things are the, the way they are, there's, you know, a lot of folks who are kind of pop up with scrapbooks and old posters and, you know, it really sets your, uh, it's hooks into you. And I found as I started having some of these conversations with members and members who had been there since day one of the Hermitage Club that said, I had no idea, didn't even know that about this place. You know, wow. I had, had never heard of Bruce Gavitt, you know, didn't know about the racing background and that ladies norams were held on that hill um uh i was a ski patroller at Berkshire east with ed relicki who came from haystack you know you just you go back and, and you start playing mm-hmm. uh ski geography and the number of people that have gone through there uh and especially especially folks go, oh yeah everybody says i remember haystack i skied there as a kid with my family i loved it <laughs> and you know that is that's fantastic. There's so much energy in that um, that uh, is there for us to mine. You know, so we, we've cleared out a hallway in the lodge that's a blank canvas, ready to become the, the Haystack Mountain Museum. They're starting to engage. Okay. Like I could go do it, but we're really starting to engage the members in, you know, finding the good stuff and populating that and, and tracing the history uh, because it should be told. You know, it's, it's part of that don't want it to become another one of those lost ski areas of New England uh, entries on Wikipedia. One of the most interesting parts of that history is the mountain's long-term relationship with Mount Snow. So for a long time, as we've mentioned, they were both skiable on one lift ticket. Uh, At other times, the ski areas have been adversarial and there have been disputes over water rights. Uh, They're really only a couple miles apart and there's still a Nordic trail that connects them if you know where to look. Uh, these days, Mount Snow, of course, is one of the crown jewels in Vale's Eastern Empire. What is your relationship like with Mount Snow today? Uh, well, uh, cordial, respectful. Uh, we're both busy. You know, Tracy mm-hmm. Bartels is brand new there as well. She came on at, yeah, what a strange time. I think she had just arrived and immediately had to shut down, if I remember right. Yep. Uh, and I've come in not too much later. Um, I'm pleased to say one of the first things we both tried uh, to do is we went uh, what we call a hiking meeting, you know, went, went and uh, had our introductory meeting on the Crosstown Trail, the Valley Trail, to uh, just compare notes and talk business. Um, and we stay connected uh, on – there's a by-town um, committee uh, west over in Wilmington that meets every couple of weeks, and, and so we're connected that way. Uh, you know, it's funny. We're so close together, especially as the crow flies, but kind of Mount Snow does its thing and, and, and we do our thing. Um, you know, I'm very conscious that it is the Hermitage Club, but it is Haystack Mountain. It is an operating ski area. You know, we're part of Vermont Skiers Association. We're part of NSAA. Uh, you know, our ski school is TSIA. Um, we're fully engaged just like any other uh, Vermont ski area. And, uh, it, it, and it's a great group of peers to be associated with, uh, which is really fun to be kind of back in the Vermont mix and 
um, you know, working, so to speak, shoulder to shoulder with, with uh, you know, a lot of really good experienced operators up and down the state. Well, it's amazing to have it back online. I always hate to see any ski area shut down. Uh, but Bill, as you know, but the, but the listeners don't, I had a hidden agenda with this call. And that's I wanted to talk some Mountain Creek with you since you were the head guy there for so long and had seen your positions there for so long. I'm a pass holder at Mountain Creek. I consider it my home mountain. Um, and, and I am an unapologetic Mountain Creek fan. I feel like the place gets a bad rap uh, just because it's so crowded. It has so many new skiers. Uh, but I live in New York City, and there, an hour and 15 minutes from my apartment, is a 1,000 vertical feet of terrain, terrific snowmaking system, great lift system. Um, to me, because of all that, it's one of the most underappreciated mountains in the Northeast. Having spent 23 years there during a very transformative time and helping to guide that transformation, I'm really curious, Bill, to hear your opinion on Mountain Creek and how fortunate New Jersey is to have a mountain of that caliber right there. Wow, that's a whole podcast topic in itself. <laughs> uh, where to begin? Well, you just hit the bullet points. You know, any good elevator speech about Mountain Creek, you know, those are all the pieces. It's depending when you drive and how fast you drive. You know, it's an hour-ish from center span of the GWB. Uh, you know, it's easily accessible. You've got one of the largest ski markets in the world at uh, the doorstep. Uh, as you pointed out, you've got a lot of non-skiing market at your doorstep. <laughs> and, and, you know, like in Donald's, we've long passed the million million people served mark of teaching people to ski and snowboard, um, which is, is an incredible opportunity. Uh, it's got great snowmaking. You know, when InchOS came in uh, in in '98, it was the largest single snowmaking installation at one time ever, which was you know, mostly focused on on South. Um, it, yeah, you know, it, it's big. You you can't be that accessible and have all these assets without you know, as you pointed out, also having a very large um, non-skiing or about to become skiers first time experiences, uh, which made it, you know, so I'll say this, I, I never imagined, uh, you know, having worked for USFA, having worked for Burton, you know, having skied all over the country, never my wildest dreams that I think it was going to be about New Jersey for more than two <laughs> decades. Uh, and right. particularly in the InterWest family, um, which was very good about moving people around and there's opportunities but it gets in your blood. There's something about mm -hmm. it. And, and I always looked at it for someone like myself who, you know, thrives on changing today's norm to, to something else. It, it's like this great Petri dish because you're at the forefront of people who want to get into this sport or they believe they do. And, you know, we know all the metrics about how many people try it and never come back again. Bell Creek was a place you could actually change that. And, um, you know, I was really fortunate to work with a lot of great different management teams, and there was a lot of innovation that, that came to that. It's, I, I think, why it is where it is today. Uh, you know, to, to how do we, you know, how, how do we get people hooked on the sport? Um, because it's great, and we should, altruistically. And two, because it's good business. Uh, the more they come, the less we have to spend 
trying to entice them to come because they'll be hooked. That's going to mean when all the conditions align, it's going to be busy. And as everyone who would complain on one of those big, huge, long lift line days when it's 35 degrees sunny and we just had Thursday snow in New York City, why is it so crowded? What can you do about it? Why are you here, sir? Well, for all the reasons I just mentioned, yep, that's what happens. And the best you can do is have a really flexible operating plan to be as prepared as you can for those Easter Sunday days, but be efficient, you know, when it's, face it, a January at 5 o'clock and it's gray and wet, you know, and mm-hmm. you're going to have everything in between. Uh, oh, I, I just can't say, you know, enough good things about it. Does it have its faults and warts? Yeah, of, you know, of course. Uh, and some of those are real capital-intensive fixes. Um, some of it's geology. <laughs> You're not going to fix it. Uh, but I, I think anyone in the New York City scheme market is, is really blessed. Yeah, I mean, the season pass is $230, which is insane. And it, it really comes down to knowing when and where to go. You know, season pass holders can get on the South Peak Express or the cab at 8 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday. And there's a lot of us and we all do the same thing. And I talk to people on the lift all the time. We come up there for three hours and then we go home. And and, and that's when the crowds start to move in. Um, but it usually when I'm skiing Mountain Creek, it's either I ski Mountain Creek or I'm not skiing at all that day. So I, I feel very fortunate to have it, have it there, especially having grown up in the Midwest where the highest, highest mountains are around five, 600 feet. So to have a thousand vertical feet that close to me, I, I will never not appreciate that. Uh, the mountain, as you pointed out, has some real issues. Uh, it's mostly just a lot of new skiers um, on trails that are not necessarily that wide or gentle and pointing to that geology that you just t- spoke to. Um, you just talk a little bit, Bill, about the challenges of managing that ski area that when it's so close to a huge urban area and with so many skiers at the very beginning, learning end of the spectrum. Oh, um, yeah, we... You know, I think the challenges evolve o- over time, and it was still Vernon Valley Great Gorge you know, when I got there. Um, you know, so much has changed with technology and you know, social and, and what you can know about your customers and when they're coming, product development. You know, I think it's made it uh, a bit easier, but from a, an operator standpoint, you've got two different base lodges. Know, a host of lifts, um, uh, you know, a weather pattern that often demands that the snow guns are still running at 8 in the morning and you're grooming and trying to get off the hill you know, minutes before someone's going to be skiing. Uh, you know, those are all, you know, that's just, that's just reality of what's going to happen there. It's a massive, um, you know, in the winter there's, something on the order of 1,300 employees, and it's less than 10% of that, you know, as, as a year-round staff. So it's a lot of focus on hiring and recruiting and training and trying to manage staff, providing them enough work so they stay on the hook so when you really need them, they're there and responsive. Um, oh, just, yeah, it, it's a complicated machine to run for sure. Today, you know, and some of this product development, um, we know a lot more. You know, we got really good at predicting with a small margin of error how many people are going to be here today, 
how many staff do we need and in which particular areas at what time of the day? How can we move that staff to anticipate and be in advance of the next surge wherever it is across the mountain or in whichever business operations uh, it's in? Um, you know, it, it, takes, uh, it takes a special kind of person. I'm not the first to observe. If you're going to run a ski area, you know, you have to be an eternal optimist. You have to be a hopeless romantic, and, and you really have to be a farmer because you are going to, you know, get up early. You're going to run hard every day. You're going to, you know, plant your crop, our snow. Um, you're going to bring it to harvest, and then Mother Nature is going to come in with a monsoon and just wipe it out, and you're going to have to get up the next day and start it all over again. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart, and, and a lot of it's hands-on, and, you know, it's hard work, it's cold work, it's wet work, but there's an awful lot of sophisticated um, data analytics, you know, and, and business behind it. Um, I think it's the ultimate environment for you know, an entrepreneur that wants to learn all sides of business, just like our approach at Hermitage Club. You know, you know yes, you may be the ski school director or you may be the one that's programming the point-of-sale system uh, and developing a new website, <clears throat> or you may be getting into the mini-X because what we need right now is a trench because we got water flooding out of you know, one of the valve houses. Uh, that's the day. Yeah, they really do a remarkable job at Mountain Creek. The, the past two seasons, they've gotten almost no natural snow. And for the 18th to 19th season, they were open into April, pretty deep into April too. Uh, and for last season, the 1920 season, they opened November 15th. And a lot of times when I'm driving up Route 94 at 730 in the morning, to ski there on a Saturday or Sunday, the guns are all still hammering. So they they really do a good job, and there's been a lot of investment in that mountain over the years. And a lot of that, as you know, goes back to the IntraWest acquisition, which completely transformed that mountain overnight, right down to the name. So can you talk a little bit about the transformation in one summer from Vernon Valley Great Gorge to Mountain Creek? And, and this was back in, I believe, uh, 1997, 98. Um, how fast and intense was that change, and what was it like to be part of that? It's uh, intoxicating. You know, it, it's like walking into a rager of a party and just getting swept up in the thing. And you, know, you find yourself at 3 in the morning, and you don't know how you still have energy, and you're still going at it. I mean, it really, so much happened so fast. And I think, you know, as you pointed out, almost – every lift on the face of that mountain got ripped out and replaced, not one for one, which was smart because the capacities had changed. But just thinking about just putting in one lift is, you know, a good challenging project for any decent sized mountain crew uh, in the summer to do them all outrageous. The snowmaking system, you know, installation, you know, outrageous things move really fast. InchWest had access to a lot of um, uh, uh, industry experts, you know, with, with specific mm-hmm. knowledge. Uh, they kind of had the might and the money to move fast. It certainly was a lot of if you build it, they will come type approach. Um, you know, at that point, yeah, 97, 98, Tromblant had kind of – it was almost done. You know, it was sort of on, on just the finishing touches – and that had been an eight or nine year project. And so there was a lot of learning experiences coming out of that. And 
Um, I, I think Intuit's probably had some hubris in thinking, well, if we can do this project in nine years you know, in, in Canada, um, now we know the model. We can do this in three years. And are you kidding me? A thousand foot vertical with a couple hundred acres of skiing outside New York City with the largest ski market in the world. This is a no brainer. And it's, um, you know, I don't, there's a couple things probably that, uh, well, there's a lot of due diligence that you know, they didn't see coming. You know, one is a, a town that had been burned repeatedly by resort development. Um, and so was somewhat skeptical, I guess, putting it nicely. Um, you know, it's in, interest, uh, this funny name <laughs> from a Canadian company that, you know, wasn't familiar, uh, to the locals. So it's, yeah, yes, they've done some big projects. Um, but what have you done here? Uh, part of it was the environmental regulations and sort of making some assumptions about what could and couldn't be done easily, um, you know, around all that. And of course, then at, at some point they ran into the, the real estate crash. Uh, at an inopportune time in intrawest growth curve, um, and, and you know that that sort of stopped it. You have to wonder. There's a couple things that they hadn't transpired. What would it look like today? Because the, the concept of the uh, commercially driven pedestrian um, ski area base village, um, you know, might might have been pretty spectacular and worked if all those pieces were there, uh, if, it, if it could handle the crowds, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But that certainly would have given some weight to it's not just about the skiing, it's about the ski life experience. And you know, that's, I, I think that's uh, what was being pursued. And yeah, it's just unfortunate because it didn't get all the way there. Yeah, I've been trying to, I've searched for a parallel and, and I can't find an example of a mountain that had that much of an overhaul of its lift system in one summer as Mountain Creek went through that summer. So by my count, they tore out 12 chairlifts and dropped in five new ones, including two high-speed quads and, and the Cabriolet. There was only two lifts left standing, two chairlifts, the Vernon Triple, which is still there, and the Sojourn Lift, which has since been replaced, that double lift. Um how did that change the character of skiing at what was then Mountain Creek uh, as compared to what Vernon Valley Great Gorge had been before? Ah, you know, I, that, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know that I can really identify anything specifically, you know, around that. Clearly, we were able to deliver more people onto the mountain faster and that was always something we wanted to balance carefully you know what's what's the trail capacity and let's not put too many people on it but everybody's visually sensitive to and uh, temporally sensitive to lift line weights you know so you're always trying to kind of balance that how long is the line but how many people do we want on the hill at once you know the uh as operators the phrase is hanging them in the air you know, when we had a lot of chairs, you could have a lot of people skiing, but they weren't actually on the slopes yet because they're on mm. hanging in all those chairs. Um, so there's some you know, there's some value sometimes to that of of where you're right. parking the inventory, where you're putting the guests. Um, 
you know, on the hill. I don't, it, it was such an overhaul. Lifts, snowmaking, trail regrading, straightening out here and there. Um, yeah, it, it's hard hard to compare them other, other than say, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly different. You were GM at the time, correct? Uh, up, yes, uh, to the acquisition. And then yeah. um, in, into us brought in some um, you know, outside uh, present GM roles. And, and we went through a bunch of years of, of changes, you know, in, in the upper management, uh, in the upper management levels. So I'd imagine as GM suddenly having access to basically unlimited capital is kind of a mountain manager's dream. Uh, did IntraWest, did they consult with you on, hey, Bill, what do, you, where, what do you think we should do? Or did they just kind of kick the door in and get to work? Uh, I, I think it probably, well, it's a bit of both. Due diligence is um, what do you think the mountain needs? You know, where, where are the weak spots? Um, um, you know, where would you put your money? Let's also remember you had people like Roger McCarthy and Hugh Smythe and Patrick Fournier on snowmaking. Uh, oh, gosh. You know, if I start a list, then I'll leave people out. Uh, Ed Petoniak, <laughs> uh, um, Graham Kwan. It's a lot of people who had just done this and been through the experience. So I think they were able to size it up pretty quickly. However, that said, you know, so little known fact, because you talked about the list and uh, the cabriolet. Mm-hmm. Okay? So everyone wants to know, why the cabriolet? <laughs> What's the deal with that? <laughs> What's with the flying bucket? And the, the root answer to that is the resort was originally designed upside down. And so the villa okay. and uh, all the lodging and some, not all, you know, there's, it, so remember, coming from Tromblon, core village at the base, you take the cabriolet to the top of the village where you access the lifts and then up the mountain. Hmm. Uh, and so it was really anticipating and thinking about pedestrians, uh, people moving from the base, vibrant commercial pedestrian village to the mountaintop where you would find the picturesque wilderness lodges. There's five lakes on the top of the mountain. It's essentially a plateau. It had once had a design for a golf course on the top. You know, so the assumption was, well, you know, golf course, a collection of little villages around the lakes interlaced with trails and roads that you would, you know, access, and then you could ski down. Uh, there's a road from the backside of, uh, of that uh, mountain that um, – Gene had put in for his, um, no one called it glamping then, but that's really what he was building 25 years ago, glamping on top of the mountain. Yeah, so the pieces were there to make this upside down and recognizing the very high percentage of beginner traffic, second benefit of the cabriolet, which was inelegantly called the walking wounded. But, you know, let's watch what happens at a beginner chair. You know, people can't shuffle up and they're trying to fall in. What could be easier? Just walk on. Just walk on. That's easy. <laughs> right. So there were some dual purposes there and the multi-seasonality. You know, even then it was about how is this going to be programmed in the summer? How do we get full utilization out of, out of the mountain and the assets, either current or anticipated assets? Um, so, you know, that, that's why the cabriolet. Very expensive 
piece of fine machinery there. On some points, you know, it works out great for the beginners, uh, you know, who are headed to the top to ski horizon. Um, yeah, you know, it's awesome. If, if you're experienced and uh, a mature athlete, it's like, when do I get to sit down? I would like to sit down at some point. I'm standing the ski and I'm standing in the bucket. Um, you know, and yes, we looked at could you put benches inside of it so you could sit down like little fold down benches. And of course, then people will stand on them and they'll fall out. So then you got to mm. put some kind of screen and now you kind of lost the whole point uh, of the cabriolet. Yes, those, those uh, cabriolet vehicles can be like a bit of a spinnaker and catch the wind. You know, we've done some mitigation on that, lowered. I say, I say we, of course, it's, it's, it's Joe and his team now, but, you know, lowered the, the tower uh, over Horizon where it got the biggest hit, put some of that um, permeable mesh on, on some of the um, cabins to, you know, to bring down the wind impact. Um, you know, it's, it's manageable. It's a curious legacy of IntraWest. And, you know, I, was, I spent some time in Mountain Creek this summer, and it seemed to work out, it seemed like the perfect lift, actually, for the bike park. Um, and I hiked around a little bit up top and, and you're right, there's just beautiful lakes up there and it's just a gorgeous little area. And I, as you're describing all these little villages, I'm imagining and it, it would have been really kind of special and kind of cool to have that. But, um, the, when I hosted Hugh Reynolds, uh, snow operatings, VP of marketing and sales on the podcast, he, he, we talked about that lift a little bit and he said they had been considering putting in a high speed six pack for skiing somewhere in that vicinity. I, I don't know with with the COVID downturn, I, I recently heard Joe Hessian on another podcast refer to Mountain Creek as um, they're running it like a family pumpkin farm. So, um, you know, just kind of getting down to the nuts and bolts. So I, I, I don't know if a, if a high-speed six-pack's in the budget for a family pumpkin farm. So I would imagine we're, we're making do with the Cabriolet for some time to come. Um, just curious, because you were there throughout the whole process. Uh, eventually, IntraWest did sell the mountain. And it, it's it's funny because them buying Mountain Creek really fits into this model that Vale has done a lot in the past decade, which is to buy these little feeder areas outside of Detroit and Chicago and these other uh, Midwestern cities to get people to buy Epic passes and then take trips out West, presumably. Um, and IntraWest never had that multi-pass, but, but they, in a way they were ahead of their time, but ultimately ended up selling Mountain Creek while they kept a bunch of their other core assets until they were uh, bought as part of the Altera roll up. Um, why didn't Mountain Creek work out as an intra-west resort? Um, well, I think it was a, a confluence of things. Um, you know, around that time, you know, intra-west had a pretty healthy appetite for acquisition, right? And they'd been on a spree of gobbling up resorts and putting a lot of money into them, uh, getting a foothold in Europe, um, you know, had, had a lot of golf destination properties, um, it was becoming, uh, you know, the range was getting wider and, and I think that had begun to strain. And, and you may remember there was um, some outside financing restructuring that had come in. You know, it got to be a bit of a crunch. Add to that, um, things moved slow at Mountain Creek, slower than Interwest would have anticipated. Um, quite a bit of that was regulatory and working with the town on infrastructure uh, agreements. Um, as an example, 
Blue Mountain, Ontario, and Mountain Creek both opened their discovery centers, the real estate sales centers, um, on virtually the same day, you know, same mm-hmm. year, almost same month, let's call it. And um, on one of our you know, annual spring senior management retreats to do the big think about the next year to Blue, it wasn't complete, but it was pretty it was pretty well there, you know, had a, a great little commercial center, the Harley Davidson cafe, a big conference center. You know, there was a lot happening there and, and we were still kind of getting Black Creek uh, built. And, you know, I'm not sure if we'd started the Appalachian or not, you know, so things went a little bit slow, slow means it gets expensive. Uh, and then 2007, eight happened um, sort of right in the middle of Appalachian second phase was just finishing um, but hadn't sold through and delivered late. And so kind of all those things, and so those contracts, you know, everyone who had bought in was able to back out. Um, and all those things did together kind of just led it to, um, I think it's what's going, okay, let's focus. The exercise a little bit, we just went through at Hermitage. Let's focus on mm-hmm. the four. What's most important, what's producing, what's in our best long-term interest not that this can't be anything but right now you know, this, this isn't uh, this isn't where we're going to put our time and attention um, yeah again you know you, you got to wonder it's, it's all timing what what could have been what uh, you know what would have been well we we know that uh hermitage club is on its way back and you're going to be a big part of that so i thank you very much for your time today bill i, I kept you way longer than i promised but i appreciate you indulging me on my Mountain Creek fandom and uh, telling us all about the Hermitage Club and what's in store there. I wish you and the club owners the best of luck with that. Uh, And thank you very much for everything. Stuart, thank you so much. I I warned you there was a lot to talk about. uh, And thank you for indulging (laughs) me and getting to share, share all of that. Uh, Two two decades at Mountain Creek, I've lifetime of better than going to business school, lifetime of lessons. I use them every single day. And uh, really looking forward to applying all of that to uh, the, the, the hermitage. And uh, I'm not going to say making Chris Diamond eat his words, but being able to compare <laughs> notes in a few years and see how we're doing. Well, thank you for sharing it all with us. Best of luck, Bill. Thank you. That's Hermitage Club General Manager Bill Benien. Awesome job, Bill. For all of you Hermitage Club members, you made a very good choice putting him in charge. He's going to take real good care of that mountain so you can chill and focus on the skiing. For all you Mountain Creek haters, take that garbage somewhere else. Creek is great. Yeah, it can be a mess on a busy day, but if you can't acknowledge what's good about it, you've got some deeper things to sort out. If you really love skiing and you live in NYC or North Jersey, that is a damn nice thing to have close by. So, I'll see you up there, hopefully. Or I won't. Either way, thank you all for listening to my Hermitage Club slash Secret Mountain Creek podcast. Might be the last one for a while. Subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. Get whatever else I feel like putting out in the meantime. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.